We're going to look at Philippians. And uh, last week we talked about uh, how we're going to approach the book. And what we said was we're going to approach it from our wide-angle lens first, right? And then we're going to narrow in our focus. And for us, we're going to simplify it a little bit, and we're going to take it really in sort of a three-step three-step process. Last week was our widest focus. We talked about just some of the very basics. This week we're going to narrow in just a little bit and get some framework, and then we're going to jump in next week starting and examine the text in more detail. And then we're going to follow up behind that. I suppose there's a fourth part, and we're going to come back and we're going to catch some some portions of Scripture that Paul throws in to make his arguments in certain places that uh, that are really that are really so deep that we need to come back to them. So that's how we're going to approach this. That's our journey through Philippians and, and how we're going to attack it. Today, I want to give you I want to give you the basics. I want to review some very basics with you. I want to talk with you a little bit about just the key themes of the Book of Philippians, and then I want to talk with you in the in the in the remaining of the time uh, about just a working outline for us as we approach the book of Philippians. Your homework, you remember, was that between last week and this week, you were, to, you were to take these four short chapters and sit down and in one sitting read through the entire letter because you know that what this is. This is a letter from one man to a group of believers, a personal letter. And so I want you to read it just from that wide-angle perspective. If you haven't done that yet, you still have time before we, we dive into the depths next week. You still have time to just read it for its face value, if you will. Read it for its, uh, better said, its beauty. Let me review the basics with you here. The church in Philippi, because this is written to a church, the Philippians are those who make up uh, the church in a location. It's called Philippi. I showed you on a map last week where that is. The church in Philippi was the first church in Europe. Paul had moved from Asia into Europe. He was given a call to do this. It is the first church in Europe. It was planted by the Apostle Paul. He, he birthed this church by presenting the gospel to Gentiles, Gentile pagans who needed grace. And the church was born. The accounts documented in Acts 16, as we looked at last week extensively, that was our, that was our wide angle lens. We let scripture help us to, to get a grip on scripture because in Acts 16, that's where there's an account of Paul going to Philippi. In the very beginning of this church, in Acts 16, it said that Paul was on his way to a certain place, and he was stopped. He was stopped in his tracks. He had, he had plans to go and spread the gospel to a certain place, but it says, quote, the spirit of Jesus stopped him. I don't know anywhere else in Scripture that that phrase is used, the spirit of Jesus. There may be places I didn't search for it. But it is unique nonetheless. The spirit of Jesus, this Jesus that Paul encountered on the road to Damascus, stopped him in his tracks to spread the gospel in one direction and said, no, go this way. And Acts 16 told us that Paul had a vision while he was in Troas. That's a section of Asia. He had a vision, and here was his vision, that he saw a man of Macedonia. Macedonia is the region that Philippi is in. Okay, you get in the picture? Um, Paul had this dream or this vision, and he saw this man of Macedonia saying, come here, essentially. Bring this good news to us. And the text, very interesting, Acts 16, says that he, he straight away, seeing, realizing that this was direction or a word from God, Paul went straight to Macedonia. 
He gave up his plans. What an interesting study this is all by itself on the life of Paul. He gave up what his plans were, and he went straight to where he believed God was leading him to go. Upon arrival, Paul does what he always does. He always arrived in a city, and on the, on the, on the set day where uh, the Hebrews would meet in the synagogue, he would go first to the Jew, which was his custom. He would go and find the synagogue, and he would, he would look for an audience to tell the nation of law about the God of grace. There was no synagogue. Probably, you remember last week I told you that you needed 10 Jewish men at least to start a synagogue. There was not likely 10 Jewish men to start the synagogue. There was no synagogue, so he did what he always does next. If there was no synagogue, he would go to the river outside of town. He would find the body of water because that's where the people who who worshipped the God Yahweh would gather for cleansing and ritual worship, etc. And so he went just to see who he could find. And he ran into a group of women there praying. And we get the first of three unlikely candidates to come to Christ. Unlikely because they were not Jews, they were Gentiles. Unlikely as well because two out of three were women. But none more unlikely than us. The first was Lydia, a, uh, a wealthy merchant. He encounters her at the river. She's saved. The second, a demon-possessed fortune teller. You remember this girl following Paul around, saying, these guys are from the one true God. They, they've come to bring salvation. And Paul turns and uh, seemingly annoyed with her, rebukes the demon within her, casts the demon out, and her owners who were making profit off of her fortune-telling they turn Paul and Silas into the authorities. The third of the most unlikely candidates comes while Paul is in jail, the, uh, the Roman jailer. In the middle of the story, Paul and Silas are arrested. When they cast out this demon uh, out of this fortune teller girl, they're arrested. You remember Acts 16. They're stripped naked, don't forget. They're beaten, literally caned with rods, and not thrown just in jail, but thrown under the jail, down into the deepest of dungeons. Remember what happened there? They praised God, regardless of their circumstances, knowing what the religious do not, that the love for Christ is not circumstantial. It does not ebb and flow based on the circumstances of our lot in life. They praised God regardless of what they had been through. God shakes the foundations of this jail. Everyone who witnessed it agreed that it appeared to be some sort of earthquake. And upon Paul's release, he visits now the new converts who are meeting most likely in the home of the first convert ever in Europe, Lydia, a Gentile female. He encourages them. And because the authorities who put him in jail wrongly um, didn't want any more trouble out of Paul and his gospel, they kindly asked him to move along. But after visiting the believers, he moves along to a place called Thessalonica. We have a couple letters to that church. But Paul is now forever connected to these Philippians. Do you get this? This is why we spent time in Acts 16, primarily to get an understanding of the people of Philippi, to get an understanding of the place Philippi, to get an understanding of the context that these new believers, this new church would arise to get an idea of what is Paul's heart for these people that now he writes this letter, this epistle to the Philippians too. 
We have several indications in Paul's letters, not just Philippians, that the, the Philippian church was poor, but even so, they often sent financial support to Paul. It said in chapter 4 that he gave to Paul while Paul was in Thessalonica. That's the next stop on his trip. He left Philippi at the urging of the authorities. He went to Thessalonica. All indications tell us that he was probably in Thessalonica about three weeks, not a long time. Philippians 4 is going to tell us that Paul thanks them for the gifts they sent to him on more than one occasion while in Thessalonica. You get the idea here? They're not a rich people, but they're so connected to Paul that they, they send him gifts. They send him encouragement. They, they meet his needs. They do it more than once in just a, in just a three-week time. And there is no FedEx. There is no wire transfer going on. Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. Um, It's been about 10 to 12 years, perhaps, since he was in Philippi, in the dungeon, beaten, clothes stripped off, wrongly arrested, worships in spite of all this. The jail is shaken. He's released. Everyone's in awe. The jailer's saved. Gentile women are saved. He encourages the believers. He goes on his way. We have the idea that he kept close contact with these people. But your book, Philippians, is written 10 to 12 years later. So when we get into Philippians, you have this, you have this context for Paul's relationship to this people. Right? You seeing this? These people were why Paul went to the dungeon. And why, when he had a chance to walk out, he didn't do so. Paul, once again, as he writes the book of Philippians, now 10 to 12 years later, is once again in jail. Not in the same jail. By all accounts, he's most likely in a Roman jail, probably under house arrest, probably having to rent quarters in Rome that he can put himself on house arrest under. So he has to pay for these rented quarters now, authorized by Rome, awaiting trial. And he pens several epistles, one of which is the epistle to the Philippians, these people dear dear to Paul's heart. Many, many scholars believe that the Philippians actually sent Paul financial assistance while he was renting quarters in Rome under house arrest. So it could be said that, that they paid for his rent under house arrest. If you took my advice and you read the letter in its entirety, uh, over the last week, you'll know that this is not a technical letter. Did you catch that? It's not, a, it's not a technical treaty of doctrine. It is said to be uh, the most, and I quote, the most personal of Paul's letters. This is in part due to what we went through, what he went through with and for these people, and then because of the way these people adopted Paul, not only Paul, but Paul's cause. We're going to find out more as we look into the book of Philippians on what Paul's cause is. This church, you'll remember, is in a hostile setting now. He planted it under duress, Acts 16. And they will grow as a church under hostile setting. It is not in Rome, obviously, but it is a Roman military outpost. And so uh, the old saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, applies to Philippi. You need to obey 
what Rome would have you do. And so you see the clash of cultures here, and therefore a clash of religion. Those are the basics. You got the basics? Those are the, those are the basics. As we step back and we say, all right, we're going we're gonna to dive into the book of Philippians. What are the basics? What are the, what are the perimeter things that we can learn primarily from Acts 16? Primarily from Scripture, what are the things we can learn before we dive into this letter? Now we have, we have a perspective as we read Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So that, may, that means something to us. Let me give you just a few key themes, all right? A few key themes. There are several key themes that uh, work their way in and through these four short chapters. But I want to give you four of them. So this next week, as you jump back in, because your homework for this next week, I'm going to ask you to do basically the same thing. I'm going to ask you to read in one sitting, in entirety, the all four chapters. But now I want you to do it with more of the basics in mind, but I also want you to do it with a few key themes in mind that help guide you. Let's, let's refer to them. Let's think about them maybe as, as landmarks in the text to help you navigate through this letter. Landmarks in the text that help you navigate through the letter. Let me give you, let me give you one of the themes. Number one, and probably the most uh, often noted theme of Philippians in a word is joy. You can go back uh, several weeks on our podcasts and find a, uh, a sermon of joy from Elder Radley of Philippians. Most commentators, as I grabbed every commentary I could on the book of Philippians, most commentaries focus in, hone in on this theme of joy throughout the letter. Passages that you probably have memorized from the book of Philippians are based on the joy of the Lord. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Familiar to you. Let me give you another theme, another landmark to help you navigate through as you read once again through Philippians. The second one is fellowship. Fellowship, literally the word koinonia. It's used uh, a few times in these four chapters, and it's used uniquely. It's not so much koinonia in relationship that uh, the fellowship that we have between each other as believers, but it focuses on some other some other aspects of fellowship that uh, maybe we don't talk enough about. Koinonia, a fellowship with the Spirit, our fellowship with Christ, our fellowship with the gospel, he'll say, and our fellowship uh, with suffering of Christ. Key theme. As you read through these four chapters, Look for these places of koinonia. Let me give you a third one. In a word, it is the gospel. It is the gospel. Not so much the gospel as a doctrine, technically examined, but our practical part in the gospel, cause, a cause Paul is obviously committed to. So not so much a, a doctrinal treatise on the 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 nuts and bolts of the gospel. But think about it this way, the gospel work, the cause of the gospel, the cause that Paul sold his life to, the cause that Paul went to jail over and over, was beaten over and over for. This gospel cause, many scholars or students of Scripture refer to it as a Christocentric or Christocentric 
perspective. It means that Christ is a central, not just theme, but he is a central view for Paul's life. And Paul's going to say Christ needs to be, he needs to be central for your life as well. Okay? So the gospel is a major, major theme. Uh, let me give you one more. And again, there are more, but here, here are four major ones that we're going we're gonna to navigate through as we go through Philippians. The fourth one is Christ. Christ has a major theme. Although there are texts in Philippians that inform our doctrinal uh, view of Christ, uh, and I would say greatly, the emphasis here throughout the book as a whole, the emphasis here is that for Paul, everything is, is connected to Christ. And so he doesn't write this letter uh, primarily with intentions of teaching us doctrine of Christ, but you're going to see him intertwine this, this Christocentric view throughout the letter. Four themes. Joy, fellowship, the gospel as our cause, Christ as our central focus. Joy, fellowship, the gospel, the work of the gospel, our participation in the gospel, in Christ, a central view of Christ for all of our life. Now let me, let me wrap up by giving you a little bit of an outline. And then next week we're going to jump into the text. As you read this week, as you pick up and you read in one sitting all four chapters again, not only use these landmarks of major themes, but let me give you sort of a working outline so that you have uh, maybe what we could call a framework or uh, maybe what you might use as a scaffolding to, to work from as you, as you go through this text. Uh, more than anything, I think this letter highlights Paul's singular focus, and his singular focus, as I've already said, is Christ. And so we're going to use... We're going to use that major theme to build our outline off of. And I would tell you that there are, there are numerous outlines. There are various outlines for just these four short chapters. You could go to very reputable scholars and find a hundred different outlines on how to approach or how to categorize these four short chapters. I'm going to give you what I've collated and feel like is the best for us to navigate through these four chapters. Chapter one, here's... Here's your outline bullet for chapter 1. Christ is Paul's life, chapter 1. Christ is Paul's life, and therefore he's going to tell this church, Christ should be your life. And by his life, I mean his everything. It's his all. Christ gets all of Paul. Paul wants to make sure that Christ gets all of these new Philippian believers. The divine author would have the same intent for us, I believe. Chapter 2, not only is Christ Paul's life, but in chapter 2, Christ is Paul's example. Christ is Paul's example. He gets all of Paul because Christ, Paul will say, gave it all. Paul bases his life off of what he sees and what he responds to in Christ. Chapter 3, Christ is not only Paul's life, Christ is not only Paul's example, but Christ is Paul's hope. 
Christ is Paul's hope. Christ is Paul's only hope. No hope or dependence in self is to be found in Paul. Christ is Paul's only hope. Chapter 4, Christ is Paul's peace. I debated with this one. You could put strength, but I landed on peace, and I think we'll find out why as we get to chapter 4. Because our hope is sure, we can stand firm and rest with and in Christ. So chapter 4, your outline is that Christ is Paul's peace. Christ is Paul's life, his example, his hope, and his peace. And Paul desires that to be true of those he writes to. The divine author, I think, desires that to be true of us. Let me, give you, let me give you a key verse just to note for each one of these outlines. In chapter 1, look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Christ is Paul's life. It's everything and all he has and all he wants for that matter. So for Paul to say that he and Timothy are bondservants of Jesus Christ means this. When you were a servant in Paul's day, uh, this word does not, if it's translated slave in your, your Bible, that has some negative connotations for our day. Let me tell you what a bondservant here is. A bondservant often, very often, loved his master. And at the end of his committed time with his master, he had a choice. After seven years, he could leave and do something else. He could find his own way. Or he might realize that he is is better off with the master he has been serving in the last seven years. He He may have come to love that master. He may say, this is the best place for me. And there was a process when this happened so that no one would think that that the master was holding the slave there or the servant there against his will. There was a ceremony. The master would take now this servant to the door frame of their home, to the doorpost of their home, and use what they call an awe or something sort of like an ice pick. And they would, check this out, they would hammer through the earlobe of this servant straight into the doorpost of their home. And it would leave a piercing so that all would know they are there by their own accord. They are one with the house of their master, in other words. So when Paul says, Timothy and I are bondservants of Christ Jesus, he's not saying they're unwilling slaves. He says, we've, we've, given, we've given this Jesus everything we have. We've aligned with Jesus because we're compelled out of love. Let me give you a, a, a verse for chapter 2. Christ is Paul's example. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. I could go to uh, many, but uh, I'm, I'm resisting. I'm going to hold some back on you, okay? Chapter 2, look at verse 5. Use this one. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he's going to go into how Jesus ought and should and needs to be an example for us. A verse for chapter 3. Look at verse 3. Christ is Paul's hope. Chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory. Look at what it says. Where? In Christ. Emphasis on in Christ. When he mentions there that they are of the true circumcision, he's alluding to the fact that they need, they need not do any sort of outward 
physical, um, man-centered deeds to place them in, in right position with God. He says, we worship in the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus and put no, look at what it says, no confidence in the flesh. Paul's hope was Christ and Christ alone. He placed no hope in anything else. Christ was his only hope. Let me give you a key verse for chapter 4, that Christ is Paul's peace. Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And you know this verse, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension or understanding, literally, which surpasses all the mind, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Christ is Paul's life example, his hope and his peace. I like to think, and I'll close with this, uh, I like to think of songs sometimes. Particularly, I like to think of old hymns that I grew up singing, and frankly, I didn't know what I was singing while I was singing them. And now we, we have somewhat in contemporary society gotten away from many hymns, but there's been this trend to go back to hymns, uh, not because we're so interested in the, in the, in the music, frankly, but because uh, we're realizing that uh, some, some of us, when we threw the music out, we threw also uh, a depth of lyric that is uh, hard to match, frankly. And so often as I'm going through Scripture and I'm trying to categorize or summarize or come up with outlines in my mind of, of passages or to, or to wrap my head around, around big chunks of Scripture, uh, songs, songs often pop into my mind. I want to give you a few a few that came to mind as I, I thought about this outline. A few hymns that might help you. First one for chapter one, that Christ is Paul's life. Immediately I thought of the song, I Surrender All. You know this one? I Surrender All. Remember, often used as, a, as an invitation hymn. I surrender all, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly treasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. One of my favorite lines. Christ, chapter 2, Paul's example. I struggled for a minute with this one, but then the old rugged cross came to mind. The old rugged cross. Let me, let me read you a little bit from the old rugged cross. Maybe some of you haven't heard it. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. On that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. Christ is... Paul's example that he came from heaven to earth. It's not just Paul's life and example. He's his hope. We sang a song earlier. On Christ, solid rock, I stand. All other ground is what? Thinking sand. Yeah. Um, Paul saw all other routes as futile, worthless, thinking sand. 
His only hope was Christ. Paul's peace was Christ. I thought of the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Many of you know it. Let me read a little bit. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole thing, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we've given ourselves some landmarks. We've given ourselves some scaffolding to which we can work from. And Lord, uh, this has been somewhat, has been somewhat tedious. Many of us would have liked to just jump straight into the passage. But as we look at Philippians and we, and we, and we rethink on how we approach Scripture when, we, when we're alone with you in your word. Father, I pray, that, uh, I pray that we would have a plan of attack. As Moses, I'm often reminded of his words to the nation of Israel just before his departure. The words that come from you, our God, are not idle words. They are our very life. So, Lord, as we approach Philippians, my heart is that we get the most out of it that we possibly can. And so, Lord, would you honor the efforts that we've made here in the last couple weeks to deal with some preliminary issues so that as we we look into your word, with the help of your Holy Spirit indwelling us, Lord, would you illuminate these words that we would get caught up in the text, that we would get caught up in what it has to say about joy, that we would get, we would get caught up in what it has to say about our fellowship with you and the Spirit and even with your sufferings. Lord, would we get caught up in the cause that Paul gave his life to, the gospel. So much so that it, that we get swept into its work. Lord, would we, get, would we get caught up by Christ? Would our eyes be so drawn to the one who came from your right hand? To be tortured and mocked and despised and rejected. but raised back to glory. Father, would we, would we get caught up in Christ? Lord, use Your Word to bring us great joy for those of us who need Your Word to be a shield and a sword for us, to help defend us against the enemy. Or would you hide this book of Philippians in our heart over the next several weeks that we would depend not on what a preacher says, but we would depend as we go into this world with the cause of Christ and with the cause of Paul and so many others, 
that as we go into this world with the gospel, we would be armed with your very word, sharper than any two-edged sword. In Christ's beautiful name, amen. Emphasis here is on uh, equipping you with the word as we look into uh, Philippians. We have this dual emphasis. Uh, Some of you are thinking now, as we've finished two weeks of this, you know, Daryl, it says pretty much all of that in my handy-dandy study Bible. Well, good. Amen. I hope you have a handy-dandy study Bible. If you do not, we have some we'd like to recommend to you. They are not all created equal. Okay? And uh, now some of you are going to laugh when I say this, but uh, why don't you all just chuckle a little bit so that the people next to you think you think it's funny. Um, and that you weren't ignorant to it, but your study Bibles were not inspired by the Lord. The study portion, you know that, right? The titles in your Bible, uh, even the numbers in your Bible, the chapters and the verses were not inspired by God, okay? And so the notes down there at the bottom, the cross-references, all that, uh, they, they can be, uh, well, they can be good or bad sometimes. And so let us help you. Let us recommend a few to you. Preston knows of several good ones. Talk to Radley, talk to Vic, one of our elders. Come to me. Uh, John MacArthur is always a good one. The Tyndale Student Study Bible is always a good one. The Ryrie Study Bible, uh, just a few that come to immediate focus. If you don't have one, let me just say this. As we talk about you being able to approach Scripture on your own, you could have gotten almost this far, okay? You could gather these things with just a few helps. You don't need a stack of commentaries. You don't need a library uh, of books. So help yourself in that way, all right? We're going to wrap it up by one more song. What are we singing, Preston? Glory in the highest. Would you stand with us? I hope that uh, as you've read through Philippians this week, and we've put some landmarks and some scaffolding around the text now, that you're already excited about what Paul has to say, particularly about Christ, and his singular focus on this Christ. So we're going to worship him as we leave, all right? If you need to use the altar, please do so.